Welcome to another episode of the Little Dudes Insect Academy podcast. And today I'm interviewing another entomologist from the ESA conference in Denver, Colorado, um, Sarai Stewart. Um, and I'm super excited for uh, this talk. Um, so welcome to the show, Sarai. Thank you very much. And I'm excited to be here. Okay. Um, so let's just go ahead and get started. Um, uh, so just give a brief overview of some of the work that you've done, and then let's get into... Um, how you originally got interested in entomology. Sure. Um, So what I actually study is how changes at the gene expression level can influence changes in physiology and behavior. Mm. And I do this work in honeybees that have this remarkable plasticity in both their behavior and physiology, everything from endocrine signaling, such as hormones and insulin signaling, um, all the way up to changes in lipid and changes in behavior, where worker bees undergo what we call an age-related division of labor where young bees perform tasks within the hive, uh, such as nursing behaviors, before transitioning and aging um, to perform tasks outside the hive, such as guarding and foraging. And what I'm mostly interested in is how microRNAs, which are these small RNA regulators that don't code for proteins, can actually alter gene expression levels to influence all of those other factors that I just mentioned. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll get more into that in a minute, but um, I first want to go over some of your education. So um, how did you originally get interested in entomology, and what was your young schooling like, like in middle school and high school? <laughs> so I grew up at a time where my parents were very much like, um, if you're bored or you want something to do, you need to go outside and find something to do. Yes. Which resulted in my brother and I oftentimes finding ants or snails or any other bug, I use that term very broadly, (laughs) according to my family, um, to to play with. And that would result in us having, you know, cricket races or ant races or all sorts of who knows what. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's probably where I first started even interacting with insects. And then whenever I went to school, to college at the University of Oklahoma, um, I took some entomology courses, entomology and ecology, and just fell in love with the concept about ways to think about the natural world and to better understand it. Um, And then that led to actually me doing research with birds for some unknown reason. For a very good reason, actually, for the field biology experience. Um, but I actually found myself, whenever I wasn't working with birds, more interested in watching the insects and, okay. and the social insects at that, yeah. and becoming way more interested in what they were doing than, than the bird work that I was supposed to be doing. Okay. Um, yeah, so what? So you mentioned your briefly your college um, experience, but what, what were the some of the projects you worked on in college, and where did you go for... Um, your degree? Um, I got my undergraduate degree or my bachelor's degree at the University of Oklahoma. Okay. Um, So in Norman, Oklahoma, where I got a basic um, animal biology or zoology degree. Okay, yeah. Um, And I forgot the rest of the question. Yeah, what were some of the projects that you worked on in school? Oh, sure. Um, So they were very much geared towards um, the lab-based courses. Okay. So I didn't start doing independent research until after college. Um, and what we did in college was oftentimes looking at um, biodiversity in forest ecosystems. Mm. Um, so do different elevations, different levels of sunlight, um, different types of leaf litter, which can cause soil acidity. Um, does that affect the 
biodiversity of the plants that grew on the forest floor. Hmm. Um, so that was one. And then the, the entomology course I actually got started in was very much just identification and collection. Hmm. So there was a lot of insect ecology in there because you need to know where to find the insects you know, and how to properly curate them. Uh, but I wouldn't say there was a, a, a particular research project at that mm. point. But it certainly gave me ideas on things to look at in the future. Okay, yeah. All right, well, um, so what, do, what are you doing now with your research then? Um, so now I'm actually studying how adult worker honeybees transition between different behaviors over their lifetime. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so as bees age, they undergo different behavioral states or they perform different tasks based off of their age. And I'm looking at the molecular regulators that underpin all of these changes in behaviors. Hmm. Interesting. So, so can you give a, like a brief overview of, um, not the life cycle, but, um, what an adult bee, uh, honeybee, sorry. Um, what an adult honeybee does in its lifespan. I mean, in its adult uh, life. Sure. Um, So young bees will often start out, and by young bees I mean as they emerge as adults after they pupate. Yes. Um, So when they're very young, the first thing they'll start doing is cleaning the hive. Mm. Um, And they'll clean out the cell from which they emerged, and perhaps in the next few days take up comb building um, and other in-hive tasks related to colony or hive maintenance. Okay. In this time, they also are eating a lot of pollen and really protein and nutrient-rich foods. Mm And that allows them to build up some of their glands that they use to nurse younger bees and helps build up their fat stores that they also use for nutrients. So at the point that they have then had enough time to eat enough food, they turn into nurses around day seven, Mm. about the first week of their life. Uh, And they perform tasks related to caring for the young um, and sometimes caring for the queen as well. And eventually as they progress and they continue to age, um, they'll slowly creep towards jobs that are more related to those outside the hive, such as receiving food from foragers and then putting it somewhere in the nest, um, performing guarding tasks, which is um, outside on the entrance of the hive, where they'll just monitor the entrance to make Mm -hmm. sure that non-nest mates don't enter. Um, Ultimately culminating in foraging, where they um, perform the most risky task within the hive, which is um, bringing back food. Okay, interesting. So, so they're basically they've got these like shifts in their age. Um, so when it's all said and done, how long does an adult live? Uh, part of that is seasonal, but in the prime yeah. of summer, when they're building up their colonies, um, foragers can last anywhere from three weeks to a month, probably on average. Okay. Um, but you know, once once uh, foraging slows down, or it's you know later in the winter and it's a little bit cooler, they can they can sometimes live a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So, do you actually have do you actually have your own hives that you've done research on, or have you used um, like the school's hives or something like that? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, so, at the University of Illinois, which is where I'm currently doing my PhD mm-hmm. at Urbana-Champaign, we have a whole setup for honeybee research and a specific cool. lab um, that helps maintain hundreds of colonies each year. So that being said, some of the colonies that I use for my research are special. <laughs> and I, I use that to mean that we modify how we inseminate the queen so mm. that we can control for genetic background for some of our work. Wow. So um, honeybee 
tip, honeybee queens typically will mate with multiple drones. Yes. And in one mating flight, she'll get all of the sperm that she needs for the rest of her life to mm-hmm. continue to lay eggs for, for up to years. But what we actually do is instead of having multiple drones that meet with the queen, which can lead to, you know, a diverse Genetic, background of offspring, yeah. mm-hmm. we actually inseminate a queen with a single drone. And so we can control for some of that genetic variation as background for some of our genetic and genomic experiments. Hmm. And then we set those colonies aside um, so that they're not uh, disturbed by other other people in the lab or other projects. And so I those see. hives, I would call special in my own that I, I reserve for mm-hmm. some of my research projects. Yeah, and I can see how it, it just lets you control. It's just one more aspect that you can monitor and uh, control. Um, what the offspring are actually going to be like. And so is one drone enough for her to retain, like usually she mates with multiple, would that one drone be enough for her to retain enough or? Yeah, so that's a good, that's a very good point. Um, so oftentimes healthy honeybee queens can can last up for two or three years in a, in a typical hive. Mm-hmm. Um, the What we call SDIs or the single drone inseminated queens um, will last usually for one full season and possibly part of the next year, but they don't have the same longevity okay. or health. Yeah, and, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, and we don't really know why. It could be because um, there's something about the, the multiple, you know, origins of sperm that adds some sort of nutrition to her or some mm-hmm. sort of pheromone production, some sort of health aspect that we don't understand. Or it could also be that somehow the workers sense, you know, the status of the queen um, mm-hmm. and maybe don't... Um, care as well for her the colony as they might for another another naturally mated queen interesting so yeah so you've done some work with honeybees you do you actually get in the hives and do it yourself or do you just uh, get the the data from other people or how does that work absolutely not Um, part of the reason that I got into working with honeybees and biology fields is very much for the field experiments okay Um, so Personally, I really enjoy half the time being in the molecular lab, but during the field season, still being able to be outside mm-hmm. and, and having a lot of activity. Yeah. And uh, um, being able to, to do the experiments on the live bees. Um, so I find that a very rewarding part about being an entomologist is actually being able to be hands-on with the insects. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so how many hives um, in your in your experiments, how many hives did you, um, or how many colonies um, did you monitor? Oh, so over the last three years, we've probably used um, about a dozen different colonies for different experiments. Wow, that's um, awesome. Yeah, and some of the really cool part is that some of the experiments that are different, we can actually use the same colony multiple times because mm. the queen constantly lays brood. Yeah. So we can actually do comparative experiments with bees from the same source colony and then do additional studies and different types of experiments with all mm-hmm. of the same genetic background of bees or with all the same colonies. Of origin. So logistically, how to how do you actually um, follow one worker bee, or do you at all? We can. There's a lot of ways to track um, bees, and I would even say that that's um, a very technologically technologically leading edge sort of realm is how do yeah. we track individuals. Mm-hmm. And there are different ways. There have been RFID tags um, if you're looking for that type of 
of Hallmarker. We are even in the age now where we can use individual QR-like codes to tag different bees and track their individual behaviors. Wow. Um, even to know like which individuals they interact with specifically. Um, but the most simple one that, that has been around the longest that we use the most often is just simple paint marking on the, on the thorax. Hmm. And Interesting. So you can actually track um, a few things. You can either track individuals that are all the same age, or you can track individuals within a group based off their color pattern, um, or you can even mix individuals from different colonies but still be able to know which, from which colony they came mm-hmm. for later analysis. Mm-hmm. And so, like, say you check on you check on the the colony one day, um, and you find this one bee. You take a picture of it or something, right? Okay. Yep, that's so you exactly take pictures right. of it and see, I don't know, aging signs. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's usually a little bit more quantitative in that we know the age and then we're looking for something else associated with age. I see. Or we're trying to decouple the effects of age and behavior. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so do the does the this is a random question. Does the honeybee worker ever like does the amount that they the amount of food that they eat, does it ever fluctuate during their adult time? Do they like stop eating at some point or What's the deal with that? That's an excellent question. So nutrition plays also a large role in the development of these adult bees. When they're young, as I said earlier, they typically eat high protein um, diets, high fat diets, which come from pollen. Mm -hmm. But as they age, um, so that's like younger bees in the hive. Mm -hmm. But in comparison, on the opposite end of this behavioral spectrum, we have foragers. And foragers subsist almost entirely on a diet um, of, of sugars. Um, So they live almost entirely on carbohydrates. So there's this major shift in nutritional needs. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is thought to play a role in in maintaining the colony because foragers are the most likely to get lost from the colony or to die just because they're leaving for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, Then by not having foragers being major nutrient stores from lipids and proteins that stay within the hive, such as the younger bees that eat it, Mm-hmm. then it helps the colony maintain nutrients in case the foragers don't come back. Mm. Interesting. Do you have any inspirational people, either in the world of entomology or otherwise, just in general, that inspire you and that you look up to? Yeah, that's a hard question. Like um, mentors and stuff like that. I think mentors are always going to be people to look up to, but yeah. I would also say that the people who are you know my peers my colleagues are the people that inspire me the most and that's perhaps because i see them the most in the lab and next to me and i see their hardships and what it takes to overcome some Mm -hmm. challenges and that's really hard not to respect um, while we're doing research you know there's always going to be hypotheses that are unsupported or experiments that fail or something goes wrong and it's the people um you know in the lab next to you that are going to be your support system, but that also need your support. And I think that's a really valuable, a valuable sort of fellowship to have um, yeah. in science. I, Absolutely. I would say it's very difficult to, to be able to do science um, alone in a lot of ways. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. So uh, to get away from work and school, um, what do you go to? Do you have any hobbies? Um, anything you like to do in your spare time um, to get away from those things? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as we're in Colorado, I think, as you already said, the conference is in Denver. Um, I'm actually going to take the week off with a close friend of mine um, to spend some time in the mountains after this. That's we'll awesome. Essence Park and be able to do some couple of days of hiking and um, things that we don't really get to see back in Illinois, which is mostly agricultural yeah. land. Um, so that's something here, but even back at home, I have a dog um, who also loves to be outside and outdoors. So I really enjoy being able to, to get out and enjoy some of the natural areas, um, trails, parks, camping, things like that. That's awesome. All right. So uh, do you have any big plans for the future? Any uh, any more research you want to do, any experiments or trips that you want to go on, and um, do you like? Do you have any plans for the future, really? Yeah, always more experiments that I want to do. Okay. Um, but there's uh, my, I sort of have a non-traditional background in science where um, I actually studied cancer biology for several years before I came and did my graduate work on honeybees. Okay. And so part of this is um, me learning how to use honeybees to study some of the molecular level changes that occur. Hmm. And ultimately, I'm hoping to combine that with my experience doing medical research um, to start getting into more of a, a, a human health and society advancement type work. So how can we better create targeted or functional information like what I'm doing in the honeybees mm -hmm. in humans to create more targeted therapies um, that are maybe a little bit more cognizant of, of a holistic organism yeah. rather than, you know, blanket drugs that, that maybe don't target a specific um, whatever the disease model may be. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting how that can relate, that that how that in entomology can relate to something like um, healthcare and all that, um, and pharmaceuticals. So that's really that's really interesting, and that's that's really exciting. So um, for those that want to follow along with your work, um, where can they go to follow along? Do you have a website or social media or anything like that? I do have a Twitter account, and I'm always happy to give it out. Um, I'm trying to be better about using it, but it is simply um, at and then Sarai H. Stewart, so S-A-R-A-I-H-S-T-U-A-R-T. Okay. Um, so I, I always like new followers. I don't know quite what to do with them yet, but I'm trying <laughs> to get into the social media realm because yeah. it seems to be a very very good way to, to communicate yeah it's a good way to um, stay connected so um, yeah I'll leave the link to that in the description of this episode and you guys can go follow along with Soraya's work so thank you so much for being on the show um, it was really great to meet you and learn about all the work you're doing thanks I think little dudes is such a great such a great idea um, thank you pleasure working with you thank you all right